Hello and welcome to another episode of Empower Apps. I'm your host, Leo Dion. Today I'm joined by Ellen Shapiro. Ellen, thank you for coming on. Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me, man. I'll let you start by introducing yourself. Uh, sure. Hi, I'm Ellen Shapiro. I am a developer advocate at Apollo GraphQL. I've been working on their iOS SDK for the last couple of years, and uh, now I'm sort of shifting gears to helping people actually use the SDK. That's awesome. We've had uh, Chris Tapps was on talking about GraphQL yeah. a few episodes ago. Yeah, he's he's really awesome. And um, yeah, he's done some fun stuff with, uh, with, with GraphQL, and I know he was doing a lot of work on WebSocket stuff for a while, but uh, I know he's got many, many hats on. Yes, exactly. So I've been wanting to have you on for a ton of reasons. And then I saw you were uh, doing the 360 talk on Doxy, which I've been jumping into. So I'm really excited to talk about that today. What's been your impression of Doxy, I guess? I think Doxy is really a great way to sort of a, start to get more benefits out of writing good header doc. Um, like that, I think, is is sort of the basic level of using it. The other thing is just providing more organization than just like, you know, bleh, here's a whole pile of documentation, not really having any way of organizing it. I think that's something where when you have uh, documentation that's automatically generated from your code, one of the things that can really suck is it's just like, oh yeah, like this is just all organized like alphabetically or like whether it's a class or a struct. And it's like, does that actually matter? Or does it more matter? Like, what are you trying to accomplish with this? Um, and so that's definitely something that I think is really helpful. I think it's really big because it gives a lot of people, like it's clear that this is what Apple uses internally. My favorite indication of this is that when you fail to add header doc to something, you actually get something that says uh, no overview available. <laughs> You're just like, <laughs> oh, good. Now I feel like an Apple engineer. Yay. Um, <laughs> now, but, you, now your documentation really does like look apples. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's definitely something where there's a lot of interesting things about that. But I think the the biggest is that they have a whole system for making all of this work. And a lot of developers, you know, there are some developers who have their own system or use something like Jazzy or the Markdown documentation stuff that I've been using with Apollo. But like taking, doing all of that and setting that up is really time consuming. Um, and so having that as something that's built into the IDE. Um, well, but that's the thing is like it's built into Xcode 13. So you could like see it right there. And like at first, when I was setting it up, we'll get into more technical details, but when I was setting it up, I was like, oh gosh, I got to set up a web server and all this stuff. But like, you don't actually need that to like test the documentation. You can just build it and then see it in the help of files. So yeah. And that's really nice. And like, there are a couple of convenience things for actually like serving the documentation. There's a, an open source package. That's basically like a Swift server that you can run that just is like basically die serve. Um, and, you know, it's it's so, definitely – sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say before we gave a more deep into it, what exactly is Doxy and why is it called Doxy? Yeah, so the C in Doxy is for uh, a compiler. So what it does is it takes 
basically everything that the Swift compiler knows about your documentation and uses it to do things like create symlinks, be able to link between different symbols between within a particular library. And the sort of really basic version of Doxy is that. The other thing that it does is it sort of takes all that information and any additional information that you've put into a, what's called a documentation catalog and uses that to sort of make a more organized version of your docs. And so, you know, there's sort of the like, the bare minimum of what it can do is it can take your docs and generate them in a fairly unorganized fashion, but like in a way that makes it possible for people to search for those docs within Xcode and within the Xcode documentation. And you can actually export Doxy archives and have people be able to, to read them within Xcode themselves. Oh, nice. Okay. Yeah. Before we begin, I want to thank the sponsor of today's episode, RevenueCat. RevenueCat makes it easy for app developers to build, analyze, and grow in-app purchases and subscriptions on iOS, Android, and the web. No server code required. With a few lines of code, get in-app purchase infrastructure analytics and integrations without managing servers. If you checked out our previous episode with Andy from RevenueCat, you know how much RevenueCat can help with some of the difficult infrastructure, even with the new updates in StoreKit 2. They make in-app purchases easier. They solve the painful edge cases, manage subscription status across platforms, and cut implementation time from months to hours, so you can focus on building your app. There's some great automated reporting tools, some great analytics, customer lists, and filters and segments. I highly recommend you check RevenueCat and get started today. Once you've done that, go ahead and check out their YouTube channel too. They have some great services there and great videos to show you how to get started, whether you want to use a CocoaPod or a Swift package, as well as some of the new tools they have in their dashboard. So go to RevenueCat.com, get started with your brand new app today. Thank you, RevenueCat, for sponsoring today's show. Once you get into, I'm going to add a documentation catalog, what that does is it allows you to sort of say, okay, I'm actually going to do a little bit more work to organize all of this. I'm going to have potentially some articles. I'm going to have, you know, something resembling what Apple has on the landing page for each of their frameworks, where it's just like, hey, you know, as an, using Apollo as an example, it's like, hey, like, how, do you want to make network calls? Do you want to use the information that just came back? Do you want to interact with the cache? You know, having that be the organizing principle versus is this a struct versus an enum versus a class, which is not actually all that helpful. Right, right. Which is like the default way of layout for most documentation tools, which is not, like you said, doesn't really tell a story. Yeah. And, and you know, the, the nice thing about all of this is that, you know, what it does under the hood is that it generates um, JSON you know, if you're using Apple's tooling, it's it's served using a, like a VJS app when you show it as a website. Um, but the nice thing about it being all JSON is that if you want to take the JSON and do stuff like convert it into a static website or something like that, then that's possible. You know, it's certainly something that's not like easy because some of the JSON definition is uh, still being worked on. But it's something where you can start to generate more custom stuff rather than just using Apple stuff. So it's it's really it's really nice because I think for a lot of smaller frameworks, like people don't have time to really deal with putting 
really cool looking documentation together. And this allows smaller frameworks to basically do that with a fairly low level of effort. And it's, it's pretty sweet. I thought that was one of the most interesting things from your talk was the idea that behind it all is Vue.js, which I didn't even realize. Mm -hmm. um, I know it renders all a bunch of JSON metadata and then uses that in the applic in the website. And then that's why you like need to do all these rewrites and stuff in order to make sure that the JSON calls work. But like, yeah, I didn't realize it was Vue.js all underneath. Is that true about like the actual Apple documentation as well? Like as far as you know? As far as I know, it's actually just Vue.js, three instances of Vue.js in a trench coat or something. But, you know, right, right. It's, um, you know, because I know that they use Vue.js particularly for tutorials on the web. And I know that they're a view shop when it comes to sort of their front end web stack. So I think from a standpoint of how is this stuff displayed in the Xcode documentation window, I think it's using the underlying JSON, but I'm not positive. Okay. So one of the things I really liked about this was that, like you kind of said, if you already are using current documentation comment stuff in your code, like you're already more than halfway there, I would say, as far as getting this stuff done. Yeah, I think it's really nice because it sort of rewards you for doing the right thing. Right, exactly. If you've added header documentation to your public methods, that's a huge step in the right direction into getting this stuff generated and having it look good and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, it, it is something where some of the stuff that Doxy powers, like basically one thing that you can do is you can link to other symbols within your documentation by using like double backticks, basically. And you can actually click on those links in the header doc and have it jump you to whatever that symbol is uh, in your code. So that's super convenient. And it's something where it's basically taking what we already have and just making it nicer and making it easier to get out in a format that is usable. Yeah, exactly. What do you think are the next steps after you have pretty much cleaned up your code comments, right? As far as really taking advantage of Doxy, what do you think are the next steps there? Yeah, definitely step one is clean up your header doc, <laughs> uh, which is uh, there's there's one feature that's missing from this that I really wish existed, which is basically a way to be like, here's all the stuff that doesn't have documentation. <laughs> um, yeah, right. Or even like somebody out there build a linter for it. Like, yeah, yeah, totally agree. I think there's some kinds of linter for it, but it's definitely something where there, and then there's a few things that would be nice, like, hey, you know what would be great is if you could just put this like this uh, error message as the documentation for a, an error enum. That would be pretty cool uh, so that I don't have to write all of that twice. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's uh, it's definitely something where like that's the first place to start is just like make sure everything is, that is public is documented. And as of right now, I don't think there's a way to get it to generate documentation for stuff that's not public within a framework. But yeah, that's the biggest place to start. The next place is really taking advantage of the documentation catalog and looking at the sort of article and like table of contents types of thing to really give people a clearer organization of like, here's where all this stuff is. You know, I think one of the things that's really nice is that the sidebar in the Xcode documentation really leverages the organization that you put into that table of contents doc for your framework. And it makes it much easier for people to really find what they, what they need in order to accomplish what they're trying to accomplish with your framework. 
Yeah, that's like the one thing I found when I first built the documentation was like you said, it it just organizes it in these like struct protocols, enums, totally useless, right? Better than nothing, but totally useless. Better than nothing, but not actually all that helpful. Right. And then the first thing I did was learning how to like organize my types into actual like tutorial, I don't know, tutorials, but sections of like, if this is what you want to do, here are the types for that. If this is what you want to do, here are the types for that. And kind of organizing it in that fashion, um, I found super helpful. And then the nice thing about that is that you can, in that sort of table of contents document, you can link to both, both sort of your symbols for your various, um, your various things. One thing that I didn't mention earlier, like that this integration with the Swift compiler gives you is like, as you're writing out all these documentations, you get autocomplete so that like, if you have something right, that has like, and stuff. yeah, if you write something that has a really long name or something that is just like, I never spelled this right on the first try. Good news. The compiler can actually help you with that. Yeah, exactly. And you know, it's really nice to be able to, to, to link to a combination of just sort of generated documentation and then a more article like, piece of documentation that sort of draws together everything that you're trying to say. Because I think that's something at Apollo that we've had some problems with is that like, you know, people leave feedback on our our docs pages that are just generated documentation. It's like, but how do I use this? And it's like, there's another little thing right over there that says, here's how you use this, but people don't actually see that. So it's something where having the ability to link those things in the documentation catalog is really, is really nice. Yeah. The next thing, and the thing I haven't jumped into yet, but I want to, articles and tutorials. Like, when when should you use one or over the other? And then, like, what's their proper place in the overall, like, documentation scheme? That's a good question. I think, you know, a tutorial is very much like, here is a step-by-step way of doing this. It's something where... You know, you're you're basically handholding people, walking them through stuff like the this the the Doxy stuff has actually been used to generate stuff like Apple's Catalyst tutorial and some of their Swift UI tutorials. So if you want to take a look at like how Apple handles that, I think that's that's a really big thing. What I find to be much more useful for articles is just like here's some like theory or explanation or like here's how all these pieces fit together. It's definitely something where. Once you actually start to like be like, okay, I'm really going to try to do this. The first place to start is just like, okay, like how does all of this fit together in, in terms of like, you know, what is someone trying to do? And then where you might want an article is more sort of like, how do I explain what's happening here? How do I give people the sort of theoretical understanding to understand, okay, like I'll just use an example from Apollo, like, hey, you're putting a, you're you're adding new network interceptors. What does that what does that do? Why are why are they there? Like what are those things and how does how does that work? Whereas, you know, a tutorial is more just like, hey, here's how to do X. It's very much sort of means to an end kind of things. Yeah. Does it have to have a visual element to be a tutorial? Like most of the tutorials that Apple puts out, like you said, they're Catalyst or or SwiftUI based, but like with your GraphQL stuff or with my RSS reader thing, like I see a tutorial as helpful, but I don't see the visual element to it that you would get with most UI frameworks. 
Yeah, I that's I think that's fair. I think I mean one of the things that's nice about it is you can you can link code in it as well as just images. And that's that's really helpful in terms of just sort of like being able to highlight the portion of the code that you're talking about. And, you know, obviously with the with the UI stuff, you're able to put tons of images and stuff like that in there. For what we do, we have a bunch of stuff that you have to sort of set up to get code generation going. That involves many, many screenshots of Xcode. Um, so it's it's definitely something where there are things where it's helpful to have that visual representation, but the place where I would draw the line is not, oh, is there visual content or is there not visual content? To me, it's more, are you sort of step-by-step showing somebody how to do something or are you having a more general explanation of like, why does this exist? Or what is sort of the theory behind why you do X? So like, why why does Apollo generate code based on, on operations rather than based on uh, just the skew on or something like that? Gotcha. Like, okay. That makes sense. My thought or my approach to it was going to be like start off with an article because articles are so much simpler than tutorials. And then, okay, now I know what I can do step by step. Now let's transfer that over to tutorials. Because once I started deep diving into tutorials after or uh, before our recording, I was just like, okay, yeah, this is a lot of metadata I have to attach to it. Yeah, it's definitely much more metadata and it is definitely something where if you have the time to do that, it's great because it is something that 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 puts out something that's really, really easy for your developers to use. The question is just sort of like, do you have time to break it down that much? And I think the number of places that have that or a number of people who are willing to take that time, because that is that that is going to be time that you spend away from developing the the framework that you're working on. Um, and you know, I think it is something where it's just like it really depends on how many users you have, you know, whether you're doing this for free or whether you're doing this as part of your job, you know, things like that. But I think it is something where having that be available to everyone is actually pretty awesome. Like it's, it's really something that, you know, can democratize being able to have a good step-by-step tutorial for a lot of stuff. Like I've, I've written tutorials for Ray Wenderlich for years and years and years. And that is an involved process. And this is, you know, I, I think any kind of content creation like this is a super involved process because you have to sort of really think through, like, what am I doing? How am I organizing all of this? And then get to deal with, like, okay, and now I have to make it all fit into whatever the the, the content management system is, in this case, sort of Apple's way of they, – they've added some extensions to Markdown that let you sort of create these blocks that are eventually sort of generated into individual steps. The upshot of it is that, like, somebody else actually already built the whole system, which I know that on, like – on the Wenderlich team, like they have a whole team that built the system that they use. Right. Uh, right. So it's it's definitely something where it makes it much more possible to do these step by step things. And I think that like the thing where you can really see like only one step at a time is actually pretty sweet because that is something that I think people get stuck on a lot um, when they're reading like a big long tutorial is just sort of like, oh man, where where am I even with all of this? <laughs> Yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. With Syndicate, like I have a couple ideas about like, oh, what if you want to import uh, a WordPress feed or what if you want to import a YouTube channel is kind of like a tutorial. But then, yeah, like I said, once I got into it, I was just like, oh, man, I need to add this image and this header and this thing and then break it down 
So yeah, stay tuned on the article first, and then I'll get to the tutorial, hopefully, you know, eventually, right? So yeah. It's definitely something that, you know, I, I think it's worth sort of reminding yourself like coming up with a t- with a table of contents that like actually organizes everything in a sensible fashion is not that bad. Coming up with articles that like really explain stuff clearly, that's a skill. That's something where it is it, it can be really difficult to communicate this stuff clearly and like this is something that I've been working on at Apollo is just sort of like okay, how do I step out of like my own head where I have all of the information about how all of this works? and into the head of someone who is just starting to use this and explain to them like, okay, like this is how all of this works. This is how all of these pieces fit together. And that's definitely something where that's much more of a writing exercise than like a technical exercise. And honestly, some of the most useful stuff that I've, I've read around that is more just like books about information architecture and stuff like that, where it's just like, how do you think about information and get it into a way of thinking that like makes it easy for people who are not familiar with something to learn about it. And yeah, like, I don't know. It's really interesting to me because like people whine about Apple's docs all the time. (laughs) And, you know, it is something where you have seen them taking a bunch of their older docs and really updating them using what appears to be the same system. And it's really interesting to sort of see like, okay, now as they're really fleshing out some of this stuff, there's things that are really coming in that are really helpful. Writing docs is is like, yeah, it's a whole thing. But it's <laughs> I think it's I think it's something where again, if you're just getting started, like the bare minimum you have to do is actually document your headers. And then the next thing to do is like add a table of contents that organizes stuff. And then that's where you sort of stop and say, do I have time? Do I have motivation? Do I have the user base to justify taking these things where I would normally just like write a lot of different information and put it in there? You know, I think it's I think it's something where a lot of people put some of the stuff in like readmes and stuff at this point and being able to put it in documentation that lives with your um with your with your framework is is really nice because it means that like People don't have to like constantly go back to GitHub and be like, wait, how does this work? <laughs> right, because it's right there. Um, one of the things I don't want to jump into more advanced stuff, but I'm going to anyways. What the heck is a docs extension? So a, a docs extension is basically something where you have your symbol. So like your class, your struct, your item, whatever. And you have your inline header doc. But then you decide okay, I want to write way more information about this so that people have much more context. Um, What you can do is you can add a Doxy extension file and essentially just write a whole bunch of documentation for that symbol in its own file so that it's essentially not just taking up tons and tons of space on your file that makes it harder to parse the actual code. There's pluses and minuses to doing that. Like, Personally, I prefer to just keep everything in one place, but it's definitely something where if you have... Could it help with like organization maybe? Like if you want to organize it differently? Yeah. I mean, I think it is something where like if instead of writing like individual articles that you link back to, you'd rather just like write all of the documentation for how to use a thing. It's like, okay, you know, just put it all in one place. That's certainly something that you can do. And I think... Personally, I haven't found that to be super useful, but 
It really depends on how you decide to architect your documentation. Like it's definitely something where, you know, if you look at some Apple documentation, there's some stuff where it's like, what is this? And there's like one line of text and it's like, yep, that's exactly what it says in the header doc. And then there's like, (laughs) you know, and then there's some uh, objects that are documented with like fairly elaborate examples with like images and here's how you do this and here's some more links to other, other things. And I think that's certainly a piece that depending on how you want to do that, that's one way of doing it. I think for me, I, I kind of like the article way of doing it a little bit more just because one thing that I've seen repeatedly is that if you're just putting all of your documentation into header doc, it doesn't actually get updated as often, especially when you're making changes and particularly if it's living in another file. But it's something where if that's the way that you want to organize your documentation, you totally can. And you can sort of like once you actually start to use um Docs, you can kind of start to understand like some of these places in Apple's documentation and say, ah, okay, they probably created a separate object for this because otherwise this would take up like three quarters of the file. So, <laughs> right, right. So I was able to set it up. I found some posts by Joe Duffy on how to set it up with Apache or Netlify, which is where I ended up hosting my docs. That worked awesome. That worked fantastically. I just set up a GitHub action to build it and post it to Netlify. What have you found like is some of the challenges with hosting this besides the the rewrite stuff you have to add? Um, that seems like the only thing that's taking it away from just flat out static site paradigm. I think that's the thing that's a little bit weird to me is that it's not a static site generator just because it's like it's using static data. I don't understand why it's not a static site generator. To an extent, I kind of understand it, but it just just because of like that, I think is more of an artifact of how Vue works than anything else. You know, for me, like I have no idea what I'm doing with deploying websites. I don't know what the hell is going on. The thing that I found in terms of things that can be helpful. There's a thing called uh, DocCZZ. They've got a bunch of projects that make it easier to work with DocC and, you know, potentially, you know, turn some of these JSON files into static sites. And one of the things that they have is they basically set up a fairly simple server-side Swift site to just, you you know, you check out the project and then you do Swift rod and you hand it a DocC archive and you're done. So that's a really nice way of doing that. In terms of how to actually deploy that anywhere, no idea. Um, <laughs> well, I'll link I'll link to my GitHub action so people can take a look at how I'm. Yeah. Um, but yeah, um, that's a yeah, yeah. That's the one thing is just once you get over the read write stuff, um, or excuse me, the rewrite stuff. If you're doing Apache or Netlify or Nginx or whatever, like once you get that added, then um, you're good to go. It seems like. Yeah, it's definitely one of those things where like. Having to rewrite URLs on the fly is a little bit weird. I'm a little bit, I'm, I'm a little bit like, okay, how does this work with SEO and stuff like that? But it's true. That's a good point. I know there's there's Vue.js for for SEO, so there's probably something that's. I, I'm sure there's something, but I think you know it, it is a little bit limiting that like you have to have your documentation at the like slash documentation, and then you have to have tutorials at slash tutorials, and like. It, you can't necessarily make it like a, a subdirectory type thing of another thing. It's yeah, it's a little bit weird from that standpoint. Like if you're trying to add it onto an existing website, but it is something where it's just like this is the batteries included version 
of what you're doing. Sometimes the batteries are bigger than you actually need them to be. Um, <laughs> right. And right. so, yeah, it's definitely one of those things where like Apple's trying to make it so that you can do all this stuff fairly easily from a standpoint of like being a web developer. But if you're someone who's like, I don't know what I'm doing, that can be the challenge. Yeah. Yeah. But I think, I mean, it's not the, what you're talking about with like setting up a GitHub action and having it published in Netlify, like that's basically the idea of like what they want you to do with this is basically have it be something where whenever you publish a new commit on your main, then it'll have something that just, you know, goes and takes your docs to the archive and posts it somewhere. Right, right. Or Xcode Cloud, right? For the... Uh, yeah, probably. <laughs> I, <laughs> I got access to that and I have used it exactly zero times since then, so... Oh, I got you beat by one. Good, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, what else do you want to talk about as far as docs? See, I was going to go over some of the challenges that folks have faced with it or questions that they had. Yeah, I think one thing, you know, I, I keep talking about framework when I'm when I'm talking about Doxy. And I think one thing that is useful to know and that can be frustrating for some people is that Doxy is only for documenting frameworks. You can't sort of document an application. And it seems like the sort of workaround for that that Apple would have you have is like, well, just if if you have stuff that you want to document, pull it out into a framework and then document that. And it's certainly something where from a from a best practices standpoint, there's some advantages to that, but it's it's also something where that can also introduce all sorts of weirdness. The one thing that really annoys me is that you can't link to documentation for anything that you've imported. So like if you've imported UIKit, you can't link to like UI label or something like that. You can only link use the the double backtick link to link to things within your actual framework. And so that's also annoying from a standpoint of like, if you want to try to link to something in the Swift standard library, you can't really link to that. And it is something where it's just like, it's much more of an inconvenience than like, oh, no, this is a deal breaker. But it it is something where, particularly on Apollo, we have a couple of sub-libraries. So we have one for SQLite and we have one for WebSockets. And it's something where we'd love to be able to refer to a bunch of types that are in the main Apollo library uh, in that documentation. If we're using Doxy, we're not able to do that. So it's, it's Is there defi- any workarounds for that? I mean, the biggest workaround is basically... Um, just like linked to the actual web page where <laughs> Okay, that's what I was going to ask. Right. Yeah, which is not great, but it's better than nothing, I guess. Yeah, I was going to say it's certainly not ideal, but it's better than nothing. That is a workaround, but I I think it's something where to me it doesn't make sense that like you can't link to anything that's either in the standard lib or uh that's a symbol in something that you've imported in your uh library because at that point Doxy should know uh from the Swift compiler that like oh, all these other symbols are available. The other thing that I've seen that's a little bit annoying is that if you add an extension to an external type, so either like if you had an extension on string, right, that extension doesn't actually get documented. Um, so that's weird. Yeah, it's kind of annoying. Um, so if you if you have like a separate file where you've added an extension for a type that's internal to your library, then that gets documented. But if you have a, a file where you're just adding like string extensions and other convenient stuff, the documentation does not get generated, which is really annoying. That's one where it's just like, you know, particularly for libraries like ours that add a, a bunch of convenience Helpers stuff. and stuff, right? Yeah. yeah. 
that can be really frustrating. And so it, it, it does sort of encourage, okay, we'll then make some kind of wrapper around that so that people can just use that rather than having it be extensions. But it is something where it's like, yeah, but it's really nice to use that in extension. There's a reason that we're doing right. that as an extension. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So. Yeah. It goes against the whole point. So where do you think, obviously we've, they, they said that they're going to open source Doxy. Yeah, they said they do it by the end of the year. I'm assuming that that means uh, December 31st at 11.59 p.m. And if it's any earlier than that, I'll be pleasantly surprised. (laughs) Do you think, like, based on that, where do you see open sourcing Doxy? How will that change the future or how will that affect the future of Doxy? I think the biggest thing that it will do is really open uh, a lot more gateways for uh, generating static sites and integrating it with existing documentation tooling like Jazzy and things like that, because I think there's at least a little bit of reluctance to sort of start building that for some things, just because it's like, well, this is going to be publicly documented and we want to wait until this is like the JSON definition is stable and all that kind of stuff. And then like, once that's actually stable, then sort of plugging that into existing documentation tooling is much more plausible. And I think that's where you're going to really start to see like things where you can do static stuff or like React apps or whatever. Our front end team is very much a React shop. Um, so it's something where it's just like, oh, yeah, you want to use Vue? Uh, okay. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, it's it, it, it's definitely something where having that be, be something that's easier to interact with in a way that's familiar to the front end developers that you work with uh, is really important. And I'm sure that I'm sure something will come out for angular too. Like that's the, I think Vue and angular and, and react are sort of the three biggest right. Uh, right. front end things. And, you know, you also could just have something that puts out just the dumbest HTML you could possibly imagine um, and doesn't involve any JavaScript and just loads everything you know, I know that there's a, a number of iOS developers who are like, ew, JavaScript, but it's like, there are a lot of nice things that it can do. But it is something where it's just like, yeah, if you want to be able to have your whole site load and have no script equals true, yeah, you can probably do that. So it'll be interesting to see what tooling gets built on top of it. But I think it is something where having it be open sourced is really encouraging because I think once it's actually completely open source, a, like if people have problems with it, they can at least start to like submit potential patches. The other thing is that, you know, you get a much clearer idea of like, okay, here's how I can integrate this and here's how this all works under the hood. I'm really, really happy that Apple's been open sourcing much more of this stuff because it really, it really does make a lot of stuff a lot easier when you can just go and be like, oh, that's why this is doing this. Okay. <laughs> right, right. You know, you can you could see what's going on under the hood, like you said. So, yeah. Anything else you wanted to mention before we close out? Yeah, I'm like weeks behind in submitting all my radars <laughs> to, to the Apple team. I'm like, I'm totally going to submit those radars, and then it's like, I was totally going to submit those radars. So I've got I've got a bunch of stuff that I need to put together. But what's been your biggest hangup, I guess, with the new OSs? Besides, besides async and await, we won't even get get into. That uh, but makes me so <laughs> sad. Um, yeah, I mean, I haven't, I haven't really had a lot of major problems with the the new OSs yet, but that's mostly from lack of use. Most of what I've been working on um, is very sort of under the hood stuff. Well, if it's GraphQL, yeah, that makes sense. 
Yeah. And unfortunately, we still have to support iOS 12. I need to like talk to a bunch of our biggest, biggest customers and be like, hi, can I talk you out of using iOS 12? <laughs> yeah, that's surprising. Like I would think like, okay, maybe like they have some sort of idea of when they're going to sunset it. But yeah. Okay. Some of them do, some of them don't. There's a huge array of factors to that, um, particularly for anything that does video. The same devices that run 11 run 12, and then the same devices that run 13 also run 14 and 15. So 12 is a point where like older devices drop off, and especially for places that do video, uh, and especially if it's video for kids. People give their kid their old iPad and yeah, and then they're not mad when the kid like throws it across the room because they're mad that Peppa Pig didn't do what they wanted Peppa Pig to do. <laughs> um, you know, it's something where that deprecation path, I think, is is really critical. And I think it is something where for a lot of places, you know, you can sort of – in the past, one of the big justifications I've made for updating is like if we drop iOS 12 support – uh, that doesn't mean that the people who have the app right now on iOS 12 just like it like deletes itself from their iPad. They still have it. They still are able to continue to use it. The people who are giving us money already from this are able to continue to give us money. And, you know, that's, when you're talking to project managers, that's always a, a helpful way to to frame things. But it's something where there are some places where it's like, well, only one to two percent of our audience uses iOS 12. That's still like, but our audience is so huge that that's like $3 million a month. And, yeah. you know, that's that's something where when you start working with, with stuff that's at that scale, then those arguments get much more drawn out. And I'm, I'm really hoping that, that we're going to be able to go to 13 soonish just because the couple of things that that will open up for us are, A, using the URL session WebSocket instead of Starscream, which has been a little bit of a mess. And then the other one is a mine um, because, yeah. you know, uh, there's a lot of stuff that we use where it's just like, yes, do this, then that, then the other thing, then the other thing. And boy, do we have a lot of pyramids of doom uh, in, our, little, in our uh, react scaffolding, reactive scaffolding that you've had to build yourself. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's there's a lot, there's a lot of stuff going on. Um, so it would be, it would be really nice if we could take advantage of that. Um and, you know, I think there's a certain point where you do have to sort of say, okay, like, let's make this happen. But I think one of the disadvantages of working on a framework is that you do not just have to convince your bosses that it's okay to drop support for iOS 12. You have to convince all of your customers' bosses <laughs> that it's uh, okay to drop support for iOS 12. And That's interesting. Yeah, I, I think once 15's been out for more than a couple of days, I think that's going to be uh, that's going to be much easier. But yeah, it's a it's a whole thing. <laughs> yeah, I've heard, that's exactly what I've been hearing. Is like like before it was we're dropping iOS 12 right away, and then now it's like yeah, we're going to see how many people install iOS 15. And I think it's pretty convincing. Like I don't have the kid audience that you have, which makes more sense. But like yeah, I, I just don't. Don't there's so many advantages to 13. Just just 13 alone that it's 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 pretty momentous. 
Yeah. And I think that's something that's really big for a lot of places. You know, it's it's where you can start to use Swift UI. It's where you can start to use Combine. Um, and that that's something that's been a really big incentive for a lot of people. And in terms of just like, hey, there's entire classes of bugs that we can just make go away. That's always a nice thing. And I think one of, one of the things that, that I always like to do is just sort of like, you know, if you have a bunch of bugs, especially if they're in some kind of like Trello or Jira or something, just tag all the ones where it's just like, if we were, if, if we weren't still supporting yeah, iOS 12, exactly. this wouldn't exist. Can you imagine? Can you imagine in like two or three years, you'll be able to say the same thing with a sync and wait? It's like, if we drop iOS 14 support, all these bugs will go away because we'll be on async and wait. Yeah, that would be nice. Um, it sounded like they're they're still working on the idea of like, can we do sort of a support library for async awake? So like, essentially backport it to older versions of. Uh, yeah, Doug has that pull request draft out on yeah. GitHub. Yeah, and I know it's hopefully linked to. It's it's it, yeah, it's all still kind of like we think we can do this, maybe possibly. It's really hard, but like, it would be really nice if that was plausible. Yeah. Yeah. Just the sugar, just the syntactic sugar of it would be nice alone. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's definitely something that, yeah, there's a bunch of places where, where it's like combine is definitely what you want to use because you're trying to do sort of more. Plug in a bunch of things. Yeah. Yeah. More sophisticated pipelines, but there are a bunch of places where it's just like, yeah, I just want to know when this comes (laughs) back. So just tell me when you're done. Right. Right. And not have to write your own promise. Anything else you wanted to talk about before uh, before we end this? No, no. I pick up my new iPhone tomorrow, so I, I have no comments on it yet. <laughs> Which one did you get? Uh, I got the 13 Pro. Um, I've been on the 11 Pro for a while, and I, I kind of gone to an every two year uh, update cycle. Um, and uh, but yeah, it's 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 funny because like I basically we have like this sort of long chain of like okay. My old phone becomes my wife's new phone, which and mm-hmm. her old phone becomes her mom's new phone, <laughs> and it's just like okay, <laughs> yeah. It's, I it's, I love my L11 Pro Max. I'm holding on to it. I'm holding yeah. on to it tightly. Um, it's a uh, 11 Pro is a really nice phone. It's a fantastic phone. I love it. Um, I bought it last year used, and I love it. Yeah, I cracked because because of the um the new camera stuff. In non COVID times, I do a lot of traveling. And the 11 Pro was really the first one that I was able to take with me and just use it completely in place of a point and shoot. Oh, wow. Okay. And uh, what I'm really excited about with the 13 Pro is that it gets up to 3x zoom, which when you're dealing with like super high end point and shoots, like that's about as high as the zoom goes. You know, you can get some point and shoots that have something bananas like 16x zoom, but like they don't handle the color quite as well and things like that. So, okay. Um, but yeah, it's, it's nice. And it's, you know, it's just one less thing to carry around with you. And you oh, know, yeah, part, of the, totally. yeah. part of the reason I went to like high end point and shoots is because I used to carry a digital SLR around with me. And then I was like, this is really heavy. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, yeah. like, uh, we, I sold all my digital cameras a few years ago. Cause I was just like, I, these are awesome cameras, but like, I don't have the space for them with, with all the kids stuff and everything else. It's like, no, I don't want to deal with this. It's not worth it. I think the other thing that I've seen is just like I've had so many friends who've who've had digital SLR stolen. And it's not like that's not a problem with phones, but it's also something where But also you can make it useless. Like if somebody steals your phone, they can't do anything with it. So 
it makes you less of a target when you're walking around just because like, you know, if you're just pulling out your phone and taking pictures, you just look like some rando who lives in the neighborhood. Whereas if you're just <laughs> like, Ooh, look at my giant camera. Um, that really marks you as a tourist and people are just like, all right, sounds good. So my last question then is when are we going to see some doxy documentation for Apollo with some cinematic videos to take advantage of your new... Because you got to write it off, right? Your iPhone 13 Pro. Oh, clearly. Yeah, no. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to be doing uh, anything within the documentation, but yeah, I am going to be working on some uh, some videos for uh, for our YouTube channel. So um, Awesome. But yeah, I'm, I'm hoping... With the rack focus. Yeah, I'm hoping to make some changes that will make it workable uh, for documentation within Xcode to, to work well. Getting it to a point where it's actually going to be integrated with our whole documentation system is going to be a little bit more work just because we are more of a react shop than a view shop. And like, we're going to have to figure out how to get everything into a, into a static. Right. And that's where the open sourcing will be really nice. That's where I'm really hoping that will, will come in handy. So. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Ellen, for coming on the show. Um, where can people find you online? Uh, yeah, you can find me on Twitter at designated nerd. Um, yeah, I tweet a lot. <laughs> it's probably not good. Um, and yeah, that's the, that's, that's my main thing online. Um, and, uh, I'll be doing a lot more stuff through the Apollo GraphQL YouTube and Twitch channels. Uh, I'm going to have to, I'm going to be starting the live stream, nice. which is good. Yeah. Awesome. Um, yeah, it turns, it turns out that, uh, if you never, uh, can leave your house, you don't have an audience and that sucks. Uh, but it turns <laughs> out that, uh, if you do live streaming occasionally, you can have something resembling an audience. So. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That's awesome. Fantastic. Good luck with that. Uh, we'll you. have links to all your stuff uh, in our show notes below. Folks can find me on Twitter at Leo G. Dion. My company is Bright Digit. Please take some time to like and subscribe if you're watching this on YouTube or uh, post a positive review on your podcast player of choice. Look forward to talking to you again. And thanks for joining us. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.